Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de sangamatasa tawara So it's an opportunity to reflect on the Dhamma the way it is and of course it always we use this simple phrase it's like this so this is a using words not to describe or qualify anything at all, like this This present moment is like this, isn't a judgment, isn't a criticism, isn't saying it's good or bad, but it's like this. So it, it's a mind, it opens us to the present moment. It doesn't define it. This is important to, to recognize that, that so much of our suffering is always about seeing our definitions as our reality. So we want to define reality, define Dhamma. Dhamma means the reality of here and now, timeless. And how do you describe, define, or pass judgments for or against here and now, because it can only be like this. So at this time, there's this unitive factor. The unity that we're all experiencing is in the space. We're all in the same space. And that's not personal. It's not male or female or samana or lay people. It's about space is like this. How do you how do you define space? Is it good or bad space or right or wrong space? And of course, space is measureless. It has no limit to it. So what, what unites us in ultimate reality is consciousness and space. Because consciousness 
is like space. It has no boundary, no limit. So ultimately, everything is perfect. Oneness in the whole, whole perfection of Dhamma. Because uh, consciousness is perfect, space is, is like this. We couldn't exist without space. You know, our forms couldn't possibly be born, grow up, get old, and die if there was no space. There'd be no space if there weren't consciousness. Consciousness allows us to beware of space. which is impersonal. So you can't claim it as some kind of my space. I've heard people use the word my space, but that's just their, their delusion. The space doesn't belong to anybody. The temple is in space. The planet Earth is in space. The sun, moon, and stars are in space. Space is, you know, where does it end? Where, does it, where are the limits? Consciousness is like that. It has no limits. It includes everything belongs, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad. So the suffering that the Buddha pointed to in the first noble truth is the delusion, ignorance, that we identify not with ultimate reality, but with forms that arise and cease in space. <clears throat> the earth, fire, water, and air elements and all the problems we create in our mind, our, our fear of death, our obsessive tendencies, our loves and hates, are all about forms arising and ceasing, sankharas. So then the, the obvious cause of suffering is, it, is this kind of ignorant attachment to something that's basically, that cannot, not be other than unsatisfying. And yet we look for our permanent happiness and permanent love and permanent stability and safety in, in other forms, in conditions, in environments, in, other, in relationships. So it always leads to some form of disillusion, disappointment, because that's the way it is. If one is only bound to changing forms, is that, if that's all we are, just these endless changing impermanent forms, the bodies, the thoughts in the mind, the memories, the emotions, the views and opinions, then, of course, uh, we suffer. Everybody suffers.
Now the first three fetters of the ten fetters that that are the biggest obstructions to wisdom and reality, the ten fetters altogether, the first three are the artificial ones we create. You're not born with an ego or with a cultural identity or conventional identity. You're not born with a language speaking, you're not born thinking in English or French or Thai or any other language. And you learn these, so they're, they're artifices, they're created by human beings. Some are good, some are not very good, some are downright foolish. So the ego, Sakya Ditti, in the Pali word, is, you know, is a very, it's not just, you know, kind of egotistical conceit for oneself as a person, as we oftentimes use the ego in popular parlance. We, when you say somebody's very egotistical, it's usually they think of themselves all the time in very determined ways, judging others from their own personal uh, uh, ego positions. But the first fetter, Sakyaditi, is what we create is this identity. We might be very humble, unselfish as a personality, and still be caught in the ego identity, the sakyaditi. So that needs to be recognized what it is. It's not about becoming a, a humble, unselfish person trying to get rid of selfishness and, and uh, conceit and, and uh, sense of self-importance. But in understanding that the, the self, the ego, the sakyaditi, the personal identity with the changing forms, that very attitude, that very condition, is the cause of suffering. Now what is it that's aware of the ego? Can, can your ego be aware of your ego? Can the sense of yourself as a separate person as a man or a woman, as a monk or a nun, is that something that can be aware of itself? You know, it's a, it's a empty phenomenon. Phenomenon, it's a condition that's created by humanity after we're born to create this very strong sense of the reality of separation. <clears throat> 
is very, it's a divisive condition that's created by human beings. So we, you know, when we begin to realize that which is aware of the ego, the sense of a separate self, me, you know, oftentimes expressed in these pronouns like me and mine, possessive pronoun like mine, my view, my feelings, my body, my rights, they're all mine, me, uh, you know, and can use these words quite in English quite freely to emphasize this sense of separateness. When I talk about me, I'm, I'm separating myself from the rest of you. Me as Ajahn Sumato and my rights, my position, my views, my opinions, and, you know, when I cling to, to those tendencies, if I don't see them as merely conditions, habitual conditions that arise and cease, when I believe that I am, Ajahn Sumedho is a totally separate entity, and if you, you know, you, if you're any threat, if you don't agree with me, and then you're wrong, you're bad, you're stupid. You know, the ways we put down others who, who don't go along with the way I hold myself in my views and opinions. And so you investigate that. You, you can actually observe the thinking process, you know, and intentionally think, you know, me, what about me? My rights, my view. And I found a, you know, a way of investigating. It was deliberately think these and listen to, to myself thinking about myself as some important separate in, entity and uh, listening to it, or, or the opposite of, you know, thinking of me as a very humble monk, uh, you know, and trying to, to see myself in positive, uh, kind of generous, uh, high-minded terminologies, but they're all creations of the mind, they're all artifices. So however you hold yourself as superior or inferior or equal, these are words that define this, this, this quality of separateness. Reinforce the, the impression we already hold that we are totally separate individuals. And like I pointed out at the beginning, the, the space unites us. It's the same space for all of us. Consciousness is unitive. It has no boundary, it's not personal. So you've got consciousness, space arises in consciousness. 
If there were no consciousness, there wouldn't, there could be no space. And then the forms couldn't manifest if there was no space. So that sequence I really found very helpful to me in, in reflecting upon over and over again. Consciousness, space, earth, fire, water, and air. So Sakyaditi is, is a condition, artificial condition, that we can blindly hold to and believe in. And so, you know, in worldly terms, that's why there's so much conflict. In religions, in politics, in family life, in marriages, Why is that? Why can't we just get along and, you know, on the ideal level of two, two individuals getting along with each other, being friends and feeling love and, and, and uh, humility is the ideal. You know, we can think of a perfect relationship, the perfect marriage is an ideal. And that's a beautiful ideal, not to despise it, but it isn't a living, breathing condition that's basically deluded. It's the perfection of thought, superlative thinking, the best you can possibly think. But at this moment, it's like this. You know, so the conflict arises because of the differences that we identify with ourselves, the four elements, the earth, fire, water, and air elements. They are dependent upon space to manifest. And yet we, we define ourselves with words, with qualities, with conditions that are, you know, obviously unsatisfying. That we can't expect to live an ideal life because the life that we're experiencing, if it's based on delusion, on this incessant clinging to conditioned phenomena as self, there's no hope, there's no way we can, you know, find happiness in this life momentarily maybe. We have peaks where we feel very happy and contented, but they change, the conditions change, the weather changes, the society changes, there's wars, there's epidemics. There's so many unknown things that, that are threatening, frightening to, to the forms in space. You 
Now, what is it that's aware of the ego? You know, so it's quite so. When people ask me, how do you, how do you, people ask me this question over and over again, how do you know? You know, how do you know about your ego? How do you, tell me how to see my ego? They want me to, to give them some advice on, on observing the ego. But as long as the question's there, you know, how, how do I as a person see my ego? I can't. The ego can't see itself. So then people will cling to advice I might give or instructions. Like how many times have I mentioned deliberate thinking and observing, listening to, to the thinking process in your mind? And yet the same people keep asking me, how do I, how can I see my ego and, and not attach to it? How do I let go of my ego? How do I become mindful? And so the, you know, so the very opportunity in questioning, who is it that is attached to the ego? What is the ego and who is it and what is attachment? Is there a permanent person attached to a permanent ego? Or is this, you know, the endless movement and change, rising and ceasing of conditions? So it's something you have to realize for yourself. It's bhajjatang vaitita pavinui. You can't, even the, the wisest teachers cannot enlighten you in this way. They can point and direct your attention, but it's always towards observing, towards mindfulness of, of your thoughts, of your emotions, of the sensory experiences through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. Now, how do you do that? You've got to figure it out for yourself. So then, my basic advice nowadays is trust your awareness. Question yourself. What is aware of the ego? How can I, you know, in the very question, how can I be aware of my ego? What is my ego? You know, the, these are coming from the ego, these very questions. Or even say, Ajahn Chah told me to observe my ego. How do I observe my ego, Ajahn Chah? How do I eat food? How do I think? How do I do anything? Tell me, Lumpar, how, how to live, how to breathe. Your body knows how to breathe, you know, you don't have to tell it to breathe or be aware of it all the time of the breath. It's automatic. It, the body knows how the function for survival as a separate form. 
But the body is in consciousness, in space and in consciousness. <clears throat> and these are, you know, here and now. Then it's not personal. So space and consciousness means the opportunity to observe thoughts, observe emotions, not to judge them, because as soon as we start judging them and saying, I have bad emotions, or I have emotional problems, or I have a lot of anger or fear, then you're, you're describing something in a personal way. You know, like these are bad, you shouldn't have them. You should be brave, you should be confident. And all the should-be's that you can, you know, have been conditioned to believe in. The ideals of being a, you know, a good person, a good individual, a good citizen. So I found the, just the ability to listen. Because listening is somehow the hearing ability, you know, just opening to, to the present moment, not to listen to any particular thing. You know, you can listen to noise or music or someone else talking and get concentrate on. And then there's judgment about whether it's pleasant or painful. And we get caught up in, in, uh, in our proliferating thought habits of what we like or don't like or want and don't want. But if we just open to this moment, this, this sense of listening is not listening at anything in particular, but openness to the reality of here and now, it's like this. Then the second fetter, Srila which is cultural condition, it's the conditioning that we get after we're born. We learn, you know, we learn through our mother usually or parents, uh, you know, language. <clears throat> and, uh, and so then the language is, is, you know, a way of think, is, makes us think in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. So when you're right, you're rewarded. When you're a good boy, your mother says good boy. And when you're bad, you're bad. And bad is not good. And so you know what you're, how to please your parents so that you get rewarded. You know, survival techniques from innocence, from childhood innocence. So it's all conditioning, silapata baramasa. That's quite a mouthful to say, but it, 
put it in terms of conventions which are acquired or artificial, like the ego, human-made, and they're different conventions. You know, so all kind of <clears throat> national identities, racial identities, gender identities are artificial. And then they're, and they have, we give them qualities of right and wrong, good or bad. So, so then we're stuck in a, in a maelstrom of thinking, judging, worrying, anxious, trying to survive in a society which is itself very judgmental. <clears throat> So, you know, most societies have strong views about <clears throat> right and wrong and what's good behavior and what's bad, what's acceptable and what isn't. And these are all positions one takes, they're cultural conditioning. Oftentimes not seen so, as, so much as personal views as cultural views, national views, religious views. That are that we acquire from being identified with with those entities, with the uh, sankaras of good and bad, right and wrong. And you know, if you live a bad life, a criminal life, you get punished, get sent off to prison, or killed. And sometimes wonder when you see, you know, like the newsreels, the old newsreels from World War II, the invasion of Normandy, you know, the Allied troops, you know, they have, these are actually photographs, movies, of young men leaving boats off the coast of Normandy wading into the shore and being slaughtered by the Germans. And you think, what, what, how could they do that? How could anybody put themselves in such a dangerous, unwanted position as obeying orders to, to go on to a beachhead with a gun and ultimately to kill the enemy? Well, the enemy has all the advantages of having a a stable position to work from, and yet they do it. You know, you can get whole armies of men together who get slaughtered in, in a battlefield. For what reason? For what purpose? Because they've been conditioned to think that that's the right thing to do on both sides. So that's how strong the conditioning can be. Because it, you know, when one is willing to sacrifice one's life for some ideal that may be noble in some people's terms, but then it's an ideal, you know, an ideal is not reality.
for a national protection of a nation, for a protection of a political system. So we, we are conditioned creatures. We think we're free will, independent individuals that think for ourselves, but we are limited by the way we've been conditioned by our culture, by our society. And those conditions blindly held to are not freedom. You know, they bind us to actions and speech that create even more problems. In the name of religion, how many wars have been fought? In the name of Jesus or Mohammed? Between Catholics and Protestants? Between different forms of Islam that can't agree on the, on the basic beliefs, you know, that hold different, or hold up beliefs, uh, you know, as ours is better than yours. And it, it happens all the time. You read about it in, you know, what's happening in Burma, in the Middle East. political systems that, that, you know, whether you're a socialist or a communist or capitalist, well, these are identities, artificial identities that we can bind ourselves to and, and be caught up in endless quarrels and, and strife and acrimonious discussions over what we think without any awareness of what we actually are. So you didn't particularly ask for the conditioning you got. It's what happens when you're born into a particular family, a different in a society, whatever it might be, European or Asian or wherever. So we didn't, you know, we have no choice when we're infants. We, we just take on what is believed in, what is acceptable in, according to the situation we're in. But we can be aware of that, you know, we're, we're not, you know, this, it's a blind attachment, ignorant attachment to conditioned phenomena that the Buddha is always pointing at. And ignorance means not aware of Dhamma, of ultimate reality. 
So we're blinded by the conditioning, the sakyaditi, the sense of a separate self, independent, separate person, by the cultural conditioning, social conditioning, religious conditioning. As long as we don't know what we're doing, then we're bound to these conditions and operate even within monastic life from these egotistical positions or biases that we've acquired through Silapatabharamasa. And then the third fetter, Wichikicha, is doubt. So a question is always a doubt. Who is it or what is it that's aware of Sakyaditi or Thilabhatabharamatha? You know, can, can these conditions, can Sakyaditi, Thilabhatabharamatha be aware of anything? Because they, they have no, you know, they, they arise and cease in space, in consciousness. So they have no heart, no soul, no, no center to themselves. And this is what we identify with, with, with meaningless conditions, empty conditions, without knowing what we're doing. You know, so this awakening to Dhamma, to ultimate reality. is, you know, is something that we're all here for. That's what we ordain for, to examine, to investigate, and get the kind of encouragement to do it, because you're not going to be encouraged in the, in the worldly life where everybody believes we're pretty much in similar conditioning. You know, they aren't aware of what they're thinking or saying or doing other than believing or judging it. So doubt, wichikicha, is, uh, I found one of the most helpful fetters to, to realize emptiness or non-thought. Because any question, you know, ask yourself any question whatsoever, and you stop thinking at first. So just a, a mundane question, like where is my Sangati? You know, that if you observe it, if you listen to yourself questioning, you stop thinking because you pause there before you start deciding where it is. Where are the keys to my kuti? Uh, anything like that. 
Should I attend this meeting? Should I, you know, all these shoulds and shouldn'ts. You know, if listened to, not just suppressed, it's not about suppressing thought or that, but the, the thinking form of thought in, in English grammar is very helpful. But listen to it rather than just try to answer every question and get an, and uh, want a solution to every problem. What's the future of Britain now that it's there's Brexit, separation from the European Union? What's going to happen to Britain? And then you read in the news about different scenarios that people think it's going, we're going to prosper and grow better and than we were when we were in the Union, or it's going to fail, or Britain's going to break up, and it won't be, it will be a disunited kingdom. You know, there's always possibilities in the future. Those are imaginations in the present, aren't they? Whatever you, you think in the future about what's going to happen to Britain, do you need an answer? Or who do you go to? Fox News or BBC or, you know, what commentators, what politicians, what prime ministers, what, you know, how can you trust anybody's opinion and view? Because they form them quite separately, you know, from their own forms of ignorance and, and, and understanding. So in terms of the future, it's the unknown, don't know. The future is the unknown. And then you're aware you don't know, not knowing. What, who is it, what is it that's aware of not knowing what's gonna happen? You know, you can be aware, you don't, you know, not know rather than desperately try to get some kind of, somebody else's viewpoint about the future. So this is, you know, it's called the direct path because it couldn't be more direct than this. So the future, you know, in terms of here and now, is you can imagine anything in the future. Success, failure, everything developing, progressing, evolving towards a better and better place than ever before, higher, more civilized society. You know, you can go into the superlatives of thought you know, of a paradise, a utopian future. Or you can do the opposite, a dystopian future. Everything's going to fall apart. The world's coming to an end. The human beings are destroying the planet. Climate change, all these threatening perceptions that are available to us now about the future. But the reality of knowing 
in the present moment is you don't know. None of us know. We might have various hopes or fears about the future. We, but those are also conditions that we create. So doubt itself is, uh, rather than saying just trying to get rid of doubts by having answers for every question, solution to every problem, you know, doubt is a very helpful reality, unknowing, not defining, not having an opinion. It's quite empty. if you aren't always trying to get an answer to the question or a solution to the problem. So that's intuition, insight. I remember years ago, you know, struggling with, well, what is it, who is it that's aware of Sakya Ditti, Silabhattabharamasa, Vichikita? Because, you know, even if you're, who, you know, and the, the, the word who always implies a person, doesn't it? What, who is aware? of the self-view, of cultural conditioning, of the thinking process, of doubt, not being sure, being uncertain. Who is aware? <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, through the anatta teaching in the scriptures, you know, rather than who, what is aware? Because that, that's doesn't imply particularly a person. What is it that's aware of the self, of the, the reality, the experience of feeling separate, of hoping for the future or fearing the result in the future will be a disaster? So, what is aware? So both are, are useful tools, who and what. Because there is awareness here and now. You know, it's not something you cultivate from nothing. It's apparent here and now. Not something you don't have or you have to get. When you think of mindfulness as something you have to cultivate, you know, then it's like, uh, that's Sakyaditi, you know, the self trying to cultivate some belief in some teaching about mindfulness. You know, I've got to be more mindful, I've got to cultivate mindfulness, I'm not very mindful, I'm, 
I'm heedless some of the, a lot of the time. You know, all this is sakyadity, isn't it? It's thinking. So does consciousness arise and cease? Or is it the senses? We identify strongly with sensory consciousness, with what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. You know, so the senses are our experience, you know, what we identify as, as the reality of our consciousness, which is quite separative. Because we, you know, what we see, we, you know, we don't always see things the same way or hear things the same way. These can be very personal about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. But awareness, mindfulness, or consciousness, or intuition, is here and now. It's timeless. There's no past and no future in the timeless reality of here and now. So the, future, the past is a memory. So, you know, we remember the past. We can't remember the future. So a memory is very ephemeral. Very changeable. And then the future is the unknown, the past is a memory, and now is the knowing. And this you verify for yourself. This you have to, you know, recognize for yourself. Not figure out or ask, ask us how, how to do it. <laughs> but to trust this ability to recognize, realize the present moment is like this. So you, you kind of relax into the present reality of now by listening, by, not by judging or trying to think about it, but just open, receptive, to whatever arises in your consciousness, in your what you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. They come and go. And as you trust your awareness, you know, you, you're not, no longer caught in the habitual hab the habits, the acquired habits of indulging or resisting or suppressing. Those are the two extremes. Those are always, you know, I shouldn't think like this, or I should, or, you know, it's always the, you know, what should or shouldn't be is very much, uh, you know, how we interpret experience. You know, it's either right or wrong, good or bad. But in terms of Dhamma, bad is a condition, good is a condition. 
we're not just trying to make ourselves good because the conditions that we're experiencing are changing. You know, to make myself, you know, just try to improve myself as a person, as a separate entity, to become really good person, good monk, good nun, good citizen, fair and just, trying to just attach to ideals of goodness to try to impose upon the reality of my life without recognizing what I'm doing. So we try, you know, to, to be good, which is certainly good, but the Buddha is, is challenging us to aware, be aware of that good is also a condition. Bad is a condition. And all conditions are impermanent and not self. So is consciousness good? Or space, is it good? You know, is it space, is, you know, it's spacious, is about the most you can say. It, it, doesn't have, it doesn't make judgments. You could have a war, a murder going on in this temple and the space wouldn't, would accept whatever is going on, consciousness. Or a group of angels could descend from the Baraminatnavasavati Deva realm and space would accept angels or devils, peace or war. It doesn't, it doesn't choose, pick or choose, or pass judgment. So in terms of good behavior, you know, we've got the five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, the Padimoka precepts. These are about behavior, right action, right speech, right livelihood. So there is a sense of, of you know, at first when we're still ignorant of Dhamma, of ultimate reality, we, we bind ourselves to doing good, refrain from doing evil, which is a good thing to do. You know, so the Buddha encouraged this Vinaya, this, these rules, just to agree on behavior. Makes the bearable, life bearable. Because you can see where there's no common agreement on behavior, it's chaos. You know, you can't survive very well in, if there's no agreement, if there's no rules, no laws, each one for themselves, you know, free to act or speak according to the emotion of, that they're experiencing in the present, that would be a, a hell realm. So, in, the, in this, this tradition, the Vinaya is, a, is an agreement about behavior. But the 
ultimate reality isn't about good and bad anymore. It's perfection. You can use even the word perfect. But it's beyond words, because even perfect has its opposite as imperfect. But you can't imagine enlightenment or nibbana. It has no image, no, no you know, the, the thinking mind stops. What is nibbana? And so they describe it as the highest happiness, which is a superlative view, isn't it? But in terms of reality of here and now, is does it have to, is it a utopian dream world that we're working toward, or is it total liberation from delusion? So utopian ideals, you know, are definitely good, beautiful. But we can also begin to recognize ideals are not real. They're imagined. And what isn't imagined is here and now. It's like this. So it's a kind of awakening to the reality of here and now with all its changing forms and conditions, imperfections that each one of us feel or as a group feel. You know, we you know, the conditions will always be what they are. But our refuge, the place that we recognize our true refuge, the safe place, the deathless reality of awareness, is not something you'll ever find as a person. But as you trust in awareness, that safe refuge is, is one refuge for all of us. It's not personal refuge. Like I, I have my personal refuge is a way of talking, but it's not based on wisdom. So can a sankara be a refuge? Maybe temporarily we find an ideal situation, a kind of paradisical occasion, congenial friends, good weather, good food, everything pleasant. You know, but those things change. And there's always a possibility of somebody destroying paradise. This paradise is an imagined state of extreme beauty and pleasure. But this realm that we're experiencing through the four elements and through space isn't perfect. It's changing. Its very nature is impermanency. So that change doesn't always mean change for the better. You know, so birth is one thing, and then death 
you know, we kind of praise birth and babies and there's always hope and expectation. Babies are beautiful to look at. But when you're 86, you're not so beautiful to look at. <laughs> it's like this. So old people can feel ignored, you know, talking to other members of my generation, how, you know, they, as the older you get, the more the youthful generations ignore you. Where they might all gather around a young person, a beautiful person that's young, because they're attractive, and so we, we like what's attractive and, and kind of try to ignore what is unattractive. So this is the way we're conditioned through this avicca, this ignorance of the Dhamma, where our ultimate true nature is Dhamma, ultimate reality. This is unitive. It includes youth and old age, birth and death. They come and go and change, that's what they're supposed to do. So I offer this as a reflection for today and hope that you will consider what I've said and, and hope that you find relief and help and clarity in your practice.